DeAndre Campbell, Regis Korczynski Paquette, Chantel Moore, Rodney Levi, Ijaz Chowdhury. In the midst of a pandemic, all five of these people were experiencing a mental health crisis. All of them were from marginalized communities, and all of them died after Canadian police intervened. Investigations are ongoing, fingers will be pointed, details will be disputed. But the incontrovertible fact is that these people, vulnerable people in crisis, died after police became involved. Four of them shot. People in Toronto will quickly recall the murder of Sammy Yatim, whose killer, former officer James Forsillo, was eventually convicted of attempted murder. This month also marks the 10th anniversary of the G20 summit in Toronto, the largest mass arrest in Canadian history, which saw over a thousand peaceful protesters detained and in some cases, beaten. As people in the United States protest the brutal slayings of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, some Canadians are quick to say it's different here. It's not. We have a big problem in this country and it's with the very people who are meant to keep us safe. The problem is the police. This is Spacing Radio. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk to Toronto Councillor Michael Thompson about the difficulty City Council and the Police Services Board face in trying to reform policing. And lawyer and legal team lead with the Black Legal Action Centre, Nana Yanfo, discusses the need to reimagine law enforcement. But first, Cheryl Thompson is an assistant professor at the School of Creative Industries at Ryerson University and a frequent spacing contributor. In the past few weeks, she's written about how black people in Toronto have been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the need for major reforms to policing, such as letting people decide who sits on the Toronto Police Services Board. Stand by. Cheryl, you've been a longtime contributor to Spacing, uh, but I, I wanted to maybe talk with you about the, the last two uh, articles that you wrote, starting with uh, the line you kind of drew between uh, the, the iniquities we found uh, with COVID and uh, official response to COVID and, uh, and policing in this city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like specifically, you, you have a great line where you say, uh, when we, uh, meaning Black people, are the victims of illness that affects everyone, we are heard. But in terms of policing, not so much. Uh, you, you were referring to the calls for race-based uh, COVID data because uh, we now know that uh, marginalized people, uh, people of color, people of lower incomes have been hit harder by the virus than you know people of more privilege. Yeah, I mean, I was having this discussion with someone um, actually earlier today, and and what it is is that most people are not even really aware of all the negative connotations that are surrounded with the word black. Mm -hmm. it, it, there, there's a lot of negative, right? I mean, you, you were black to a funeral. 
Um, you think about a blackout. It's like, there's just a lot of connotations around that word. But then at the same time, there's a lot of like, like celebrations that like, you know, if you, if you have to go out to an event, it's probably it's black tie. You you have to have your little black dress. Like, mm-hmm. so it, there's a pair, there's a tension with that word black. Right. And I think one of the things in the media and often how in, institutionally, how things get framed they just don't get framed with that nuance in mind. So the, instead they reinforce, often they reinforce the negative attachments to that, to that word. So they, and they don't think about how, imagine if you're a young person right now and you're black, everything, every time you're hearing the word black, it's around anti-black racism. Right. That's a heavy weight to carry. And you don't ever feel where you're being celebrated. So I think what I was trying to get at at that article is kind of to just kind of wake people up a bit to the ways in which they hear about black stories and what is the tone and what is the subject matter. And if you were to really do an examination in your own life, you would probably say, wait a second, every time I hear something black, it's negative. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of negative um, energy right now around the word black. And I think um, most people are just not paying attention to that. You've taken to Twitter daily to sort of um, at once uh, detail anti-Black racism in Canada, especially in, in a time where uh, I think a lot of Canadians would like to pretend that it didn't exist and doesn't exist. But also you're documenting and celebrating uh, Black contributions to Canadian culture and music and art and that kind of thing. Yeah, because I really want to point to that duality you know, through the struggle, through the resistance, there's been great triumph and and great contributions. And I think, you know, I'm one of those people where I don't think in a binaristic manner, in the sense that I don't think it has to be one or the other or this and that. Like, I always believe that it can be a both and. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you can talk about issues of, of anti-Black racism and all and, and injustice. At the same time, you talk about contribution and sort of the, the creative talents of Black community. You can do both. The other article that you, you wrote recent, uh, the most recent one that I, I hope to touch on is, is just kind of responding to Mark Sanders, uh, the current police chief in Toronto, saying that he's going to step down. And how you you sort of feel ambivalent about about that uh, announcement, but maybe that's um, whoever the next chief is, and you know if, if there is a search to have someone uh, a person of color, or more progressive, like Peter Slowly's name was mentioned. I think is in, in Ottawa. He used to be the deputy chief. Um, you're saying that without real systemic reform in the police service, that it doesn't really matter who the chief is going to be. No, nothing's really. We're not going to see major change. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because, you know, one of the ways that things change is when, when everybody agrees that there's a problem, Mm -hmm. you know, you could even think in your own life, like if you have some family issues, those issues are not going to be resolved until everyone says, yes, yes, you're right. We have a problem. Right. And when it comes to policing, the public sees the problem. You have the victims of police brutality, obviously, know that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Even the media has tried to signal that there might be some issues. Yet you have the institution itself that keeps saying, no, everything is fine. 
And right. so, you know, um, that's why there has to be widespread reform to policing so that they could at least at a bare minimum, see what the public sees. Cause right now there's a disconnect and I think replacing a chief, I mean, if that disconnect is still existing, right? If you replace the chief, all they're going to do is try to appease the powers that be and then basically, you know, play the middle ground with the public. Right. Because they really don't have any power to do anything. You know, a police chief, if you if you think about it, is is quite powerless to really change the culture of policing because they have to answer to so many people. Yeah, I mean, they, they have to answer to the board, but the board doesn't really get say over how they operate. And and then you, you document in, in your piece that Sanders also was hit very hard by uh, Mike McCormick in the Toronto Police Association, who uh, you, you said something very good along the lines of at least he's consistent in uh, trying to, you know, stop any progress that might help black people. Yes, I mean, it's true. You know exactly where he stands. Mm-hmm. That is not a wishy-washy person. And to some degree... I do appreciate that because if you know where he stands, then the question to really ask is, why doesn't anyone do something about that person? And I say that because, you know, I don't, I often don't like to attack one person because often behind the scenes, we know that it's more complicated. Like they're, Mm -hmm. they're the, the talking head. They're the one that you know, but you don't know who, who they know and who they have to work alongside. Right. Right. But, but Mike McCormick has just made so many comments that signals that he's not a community-minded person. He's only interested in the interests of, quote-unquote, his officers. But he's not realizing that police is a service, <laughs> right? Just like transit. Mm-hmm. So that service relies on people. So if you're only interested in the officers and not the people, you are you actually shouldn't even be in that job. Because you that's not what you're supposed to be that's not the mindset that you're supposed to have. Right. And I think the problem that I'm having, especially with the TPA is that where is this sense of wanting to at least hear the community out? He's very resistant to even having a conversation with community members. And I think there's something about that, that, that seems antithetical to what policing as they describe it is supposed to be about. Right. And I, I guess there's a question to an extent, uh, how much does Mike McCormick speak for the force as a whole? Because uh, you, you mentioned a, a non-confidence vote that they took uh, in response to uh, Mark Sanders. And uh, I think the, the attendance of that vote was under 50%. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, the truth is we, you know, we really don't know what police officers on the whole think and feel. We only know what the talking heads say about them. Right. So we really only have that level. And I think, you know, there's been a lot lately, obviously, that police departments across North America have had to deal with. And the one thing that I will agree with, even as someone who's been quite critical of policing, is that when you when you keep pitting someone as the villain what actually ends up happening, just like the victim, you know, the villain and the victim are very similar in this regard. You, you cease to see them as whole people. Like they kind of become wooden, like just an archetype. So then you don't see their feelings. You don't see their point of view. They're, they're almost dehumanized. And I think what's happening through all these movements and, 
is that there is a bit of dehumanization that's happening of the victims of police and the same way of police themselves. That we we almost like it's like we, we're talking over each other, you know, we're with and we're using a different language to get to know each other. <laughs> right. And there's these expected roles that everyone has to kind of play. Right. And and at the same time, you know, I think these are like policing, if we, we stick with that, is a trusted institution that's been around what since in its current form, really since the 19th century, late early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And I think people are probably you know, you hear the calls, like I mentioned in the article, to defund the police or abolish the police and all those words. And they get really scared because this is something that we've always known. But the reality is, is that I think in the 21st century, we really need to start reimagining a lot of these institutions that we've always known. Maybe they're just not working as well as they and truth is they probably never worked to begin with. <laughs> I think what's happening is just now we live we live in a time where there's way more diverse voices that actually can be heard. Right. You know, we have to remember that like people want to always go back to the civil rights movement, but in the civil rights era, there was a serious gatekeeping of whose voices would even be heard Mm -hmm. today. The gatekeepers, yes, they're still there, but there's a, there's more of a wider net on who actually gets to speak. And a Mm -hmm. lot of that is because of the internet and social media. Right. The truth is, you don't have to wait for a big network to get you on TV. You could literally just go on your TikTok and say something mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and you might get you might go viral. You just never know. Right. So the power is way more with the people than I think it's ever been. And I think for historical institutions like policing, I think that's really terrifying for them. Yeah. And speaking of the defund movement, uh, I wanted to ask you about it because uh, by the time listeners hear this, the vote uh, at uh, Toronto Council will have already happened. But uh, there is a motion uh, coming to council as we as we speak to sort of take away 10% of the police budget. And there there are other pieces of that uh, motion that involve uh, asking the province for the agility to actually try and reform certain aspects of the police force. Are you excited about that? Are you are you going to follow it, or is it too much, too little? Uh, how, how are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, we really have to see what happens. It's hard to right. say. You know, I think because again, this is uncharted waters, right? I mean, even though you know we've had a Black Lives Matter movement, Toronto, right? That's been around, even when they first sprouted out up they weren't talking about defunding the police like this is a this is a new rhetoric mm-hmm. you know that's really caught on and it's not to say that these narratives haven't been around because there's people have been talking about defunding policing for 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 decades it's it's not new it's right. just that it wasn't necessarily attached to it wasn't necessarily on the ground you know like on the street with the people protesting it really wasn't on that level so I just feel like city council, to be honest, they're feeling the pressure, if not from their constituents, they're feeling the pressure from our time to reimagine how they allocate funds and for what. Oftentimes when people call police, like you heard about that tragic incident that happened in Malton, where Mm -hmm. a man, again, had a mental health crisis, police were called and he ended up dead. There are many instances like that where, to be honest, why are we calling police in that situation? There's no other party involved. It's one person. They're having a mental health crisis. 
it, it almost seems weird that we would call people to come on the scene with, with guns mm-hmm. and batons and tasers to deal with someone who actually needs care. Yeah. So it, it, part of this is about care. And I think as a, as a, as a society, we have to really question if brute force is the correct response to a situation where a person is in crisis. Because police, if we're being honest, like they're really trained to exert force. Like that is the, that's why they call it the police force. Right. (laughs) You know, that is the intent of policing. I'm not being critical. I'm just telling you what they're for. And so why are we calling up an institution that is there to exert force to a situation where really we need compassion, empathy, and care? Right. And, uh, normally, uh, in, in the summer months, uh, we would do some kind of special book episode. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but you actually have a book coming out in a number of months. Is it too soon to, to tell us a bit about that? Well, you know, that book, um, Uncle Race, Nostalgia and the Politics of Loyalty, has actually been pushed back into February 2021 for various reasons. Okay. But no, it is not too soon because that book is really addressing the issue of, you know, re- funny enough, it was just last week, right? Where the, all the the major brands removed their logos. So Uncle Ben went down, mm-hmm. Jemima went down, and Rastas, the cream of wheat um, logo went down. And so that book is talking about those particular archetypes that are almost like the other side of the coin as it relates to Black identity. So there, there's two prevailing tropes of especially black masculinity that we see everywhere. So the trope that's actually circulating right now has to do with violence and criminality and this idea of the the black brute, if you will, someone who is violent or aggressive. And you see in a lot of the police interactions how there's always this presumption that a black man who just reaches for something has to be going for a gun. Right. right. There's always a presumption that they're going to be doing something violent. So that is that is an archetype that it, that was created. It, it That myth of black male um, violence was actually created. Same idea on the flip side of that. There's the uncle who is calm and nice and always smiling. We can think of the railway porter or we can think of certain depictions that we've seen in film and television of just like a black buddy. Right. The book that I've written is really trying to get at how these myths around Black masculinity were created through culture. So through the visual culture, popular culture from the 19th century. So beginning with Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which most people recognize, mm-hmm. and then coming all the way up to today. And so I think to be honest, the book will be very timely because it will get people to start to think about um, where it is their beliefs actually come from as it relates to race and Black men in particular. And that's Coach House Books, February 2021? That's correct. Well, I uh, I can't wait to read it. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. No, thank you for having me. This was a good conversation. Michael Thompson is the counselor for Scarborough Centre. He is one of Mayor John Tory's deputy mayors and the only black member of council. Despite being a conservative who took a tough-on-crime approach early in his council career, 
he eventually became vocally critical about certain policing practices like carding. A position pundits cite as the reason John Tory removed him from his seat on the Toronto Police Services Board, although Tory himself later changed his position on the issue after significant public pressure. As police board vice chair during Rob Ford's mayoralty, and at city council, Thompson made many attempts to cut police spending, and for that, he faced some political and personal consequences. We're, we're all talking about police reform this week, and uh, I think uh, given your experience as a councillor and as a former vice chair of the Toronto Police Services Board, I think you can speak to a lot of the issues that uh, council is about to face in, in just a couple of days. So I wanted to begin with uh, just talking about your tenure on the police board from 2010 to 2014, where there was an attempt to reduce the police budget by about 10%. There's always been an effort to address the issue around policing costs. We think it's, uh, it's an important service, obviously, that's provided for the community to be safe. And I think as a politician, our first and primary duty is to ensure that everyone in our society is safe, feeling safe, and feeling that resources are applied to assist in um, ensuring that safety is addressed. So the policing budget, because it's a, it's a big piece of the city's budget, uh, we were always looking at uh, that as an issue because of the fact that if we're able to realize savings through policing, we can invest in so many other different areas. And so it's always important to be viewing it with respect to a view in terms of looking at what services the police uh, provide and, and whether or not all those services that are provided should be provided by them or whether or not it could be done in a different manner and at a lesser cost. Right. You're talking about the possibility of maybe some of that funding would go to more preventative things like, uh, you know, investment in uh, child and family services, that kind of thing. Well, in 2016, I moved a motion that really speaks to addressing this issue. Uh, in fact, it was a four-part motion that started off with $24 million redu reduction and then where those funds would be invested in. And I think it was an $18 million Reduction went down to 16 and then way down, right down to 12. Right. Uh, so that, that initial movement in uh, 2011, I believe it was, uh, where it was Mayor Ford at the time kind of was calling yeah. for uh, uh, cuts, cuts for every department all across city services. And uh, it was met with great pushback. Uh, can, can you explain yeah. sort of what, what that pushback looked like? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have enough time, but I would right. attempt to uh, praise it. So here's the thing. The first occasion I had on getting appointed to the police service uh, board by then the late Mayor Ford, and my first occasion on arriving at police headquarters, I was met with, he's here to take our money away from us. He's the guy that's here to take our money away from us. That was what was said to me. Right. The At the time, the police were looking at a overall in terms of implementing a new computerized system. So when I got on the board, they were in the process because the previous board had approved the new computer um, system for the police at a cost of $35 million. Mm -hmm. I started to ask questions around why, first of all, it cost that. And secondly, what would be the efficiencies that would be brought in? 
in any event, I asked questions in terms of I wanted to understand, wanted to see a business plan, a model that showed us where all of the savings, all the benefits would be realized and so on. Of course, they didn't have one. And uh, it was a big issue. Um, I recall there was a special meeting call, which although I was a board member, I wasn't invited to. And that meeting was called to approve the, the process of the acquisition of the computer uh, that the police wanted. I learned about that meeting like within a matter of uh, sort of, um, I guess, an, an hour or 45 minutes before the actual meeting. And I arrived and everyone was shocked that I was there. So when I arrived, you know, we call them the white shirts that is that the um, at headquarters, the white shirts are the guys in summertime, they're in short sleeve and wintertime, they're in long sleeve. They're the ones that are running the police. They're called the white shirts. Mm -hmm. There are all of these white shirts in the room. And I was the only person who was opposed to them getting what they want, which is approval for the acquisition of the computer system. Right. And so I, I then asked, can you provide me with the business plan to show me where all the efficiencies and show me what the benefits were going to be? And I was told that they would give me a verbal overview on the business case, mm -hmm. uh, on the financial and all of those details. And I said, no, I wanted something in writing. Right. They said they didn't have one. So it was that that time I moved a motion that said, I would ask that this particular meeting be adjourned and that we consider this at a later date when we have all the inf necessary information and so on. And there was a vote on it and the meeting was adjourned. Well, after that meeting was adjourned, basically it was the commentary, the looks that I got, it was like, how dare you? Who are you? It was, it was interesting in terms of the, just the animosity that came as a result of that. So we continued pushing forward through the exercise of modernization and transformation. We um, went through, this is, you know, moment of sometime later where we asked for a $50 million reduction in the police budget. Right. We were discussing the budget at that point and it got really heated. Bill Blair was really upset that I would uh, be pushing this and that, Others were supporting me and so on in this. And we ended up having to kind of recess the meeting. We went into a special room there at uh, police headquarters with myself, uh, Bill Blair and Alec Mukherjee. He was steaming. I mean, if he could have just uh, opened up his, uh, his, his chest, he would have absorbed us all in because he was so angry, right? right that we had dared the audacity to wanting to, take money away from the police and so on. Anyways, we, I insisted and held firm on it. And so there was a subsequent arrangement, a deal, if you will, that said, well, we can, we can maybe cut it down a bit, this budget, but we guarantee you the next one, we're going to give you 50 million. Well, you know what happens with that in policing? The next one never materializes because there's always other issues, other excuses and so on, other excuses as to why it can't be done and so on. Right. And so it wasn't done. So it, look, we had always had, I've always had an eye on addressing the issue with respect to policing and the policing costs. I have nothing against the police. I have, I'm a supporter of the police, to be honest with you, but in, in balance, right? Not against an imposition of um, any actions against any group or treating them improperly and what have you, and not, not simply 
cutting the budget for the sake of cutting the budget. I don't know if you remember, but also in 2011, I called for 500 less police officers. Mm -hmm. It's on the record. And then as subsequent to that, uh, then budget chief Mike Delgrand came and said to the board, well, you know, we want 500. And then there was this great push from some members of the public, but clearly from policing community that said, you can't do that. And uh, there were words used to characterize my actions, Mm -hmm. but my actions were simply that we needed to, pardon the pun, but we really needed to arrest the police budget, at least charging it with a misdemeanor of just being uh, too bloody expensive. Well, I think your story, it really speaks to the weird sort of creature that the the police services board is, the sort of arm's length uh, creation of the police services act. Yeah. It's, it's very, the idea is that uh, it would guide the police service policy, but uh, but wouldn't guide the day-to-day operations. But I think you, you mentioned former police board chair Alok Mukherjee. He, he said many times that, and especially in the book that he wrote, that uh, what that actually looks like is the police services board never truly knows what's going on in the police services. True. And then they tend to say everything is operational. And I remember when I was there, I was not having any of it, was not accepting any of it. And we forced the issue to say, we're not going to accept that these things are operational. Because one one example of that, you recall during the G20 where officers were removing their name tags. Mm-hmm. And so I got into the board around the time when we were dealing with the aftermath of that, the results of that. Right. And reports came in and we said, no, these officers have got to be disciplined. And we talked about that with the chief, but then it was, seemed to have been a general laissez-faire attitude, which is, well, you know, you can't really do that because it's more operational. And we said, no, nope, we're going to do it. Then really what it was, you just had to stand up to them. Right. And standing up to them means a lot because it takes a lot of pressure. You have no idea, like the general person, they have no idea in trying to affect the police during that time leading into... 2014, 2014, what we had is a situation where police were writing less tickets. Right, traffic tickets. Traffic tickets, less infractions occur. I think our numbers was about a 30% reduction in our revenues generating from generated from the police. So they have an opportunity as well to either whether or not it's worked a rule and whether or not it's simply not issue tickets, but issue warnings and all of those things. So there are many things that they can use, our actions they can use to affect decisions that we made that they don't like. Right. And so that is a real problem. But we've seen time and time again where efforts were being made and they, as I said, characterize it as being operational and that wasn't your area of responsibility because the way the board works, we've got to follow these policies that basically ties your hands and limits your impact and inhibits your ability to actually do your job as a board member. I remember once when they tried to investigate me, they went all the way to the attorney general, they went to OCOP, OCPC, and they did all of these things. I think it was Andy Pringle was the chair at the time. And this is all at the urging of the police. And what had happened was that someone had sort of said, oh, Thompson, blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to get into the details, but I'm just simply saying 
it was more for intimidation. Because of public comments. Yeah. So I was taken, uh, there was an official complaint lodged against me and so on and so forth. And so the board, of course, launched an investigation and it took, I don't know, six, seven, eight months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Six, seven, eight months. You can imagine, because this is all designed to kind of, you know, let you feel stressed, like you feel pressured. And it's, it's a chill. It's, it's a chill. For, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I've not really talked a lot about this, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. but there's a lot that went on there when I was on the board. For you, uh, you were no longer on, on the, the police board after that. But as you say, you, you continued to try and pass motions uh, with an eye to some kind of reform. Yes. Um, do you know why? Why aren't you on the police board? <laughs> Is that a serious question? I'm only kidding. Um, well, I was. It's up to you. I, yeah, no, I, I, I wanted to be on the police service board and um, I, was, uh, I did not have the votes. And now, uh, in current day council, there is going to be a motion uh, from uh, Councillor Matlow and Councillor Wong Tam, something along the lines of a sort of ten percent uh, cut to the police budget. And you, you sounded uh, in the media kind of skeptical about whether that will work or whether it will pass. Or I think because of the the way that the police board is structured, uh, if there's really any control that the city has over this kind of thing, can you explain your thoughts on that? I've always taken the position is that there is an approach that one should take to address and affect the policing budgetary concerns that I have, but it wasn't meant to be as, as used as a pejorative approach to policing and impacting policing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't meant to be seen as a situation in which we were us against them approach type of uh, approach to addressing policing funding and policing budgets and how we can reallocate those particular resources. It was always intended in a way to really bring a focus of attention to the fact that while we can have safe and adequate policing and the numbers of police officers and police personnel that are needed, we need to do it in a way to ensure that we can actually have success. Mm-hmm. With the recognition that 90% of the police budget is salaries. So when you have the number of police officers, in this case, with the current um, police budget of 1,079,980,000,000 of that would be 90%. You're left with $108 million in terms of doing, you know, taking care of the lighting, the paying little bills and doing all the things, buying cars, doing all these other things because of the process that's necessary and so on. I think that there's a way to do it, both in terms of instructions to the board and asking the board to do certain things, as well as identifying areas that we want to invest in with respect to how we allocate our budgets. Mm -hmm. I also know that as we have a police contract with the with the police uh, association because that's who we have that with for the next four years right it's impossible to simply fire them police officers mm-hmm. it's impossible to alter the contracts without their involvement their engagement it is very possible and doable in terms of affecting the con the uh, budget as part of a process uh, is it a 10 percent effect probably not is it lesser numbers? More than likely. 
Are you more uh, able to succeed with lesser desired in terms of reduction, such as the motions of I move in 2016? I think it's highly possible. And would that be more um, of a, an, an appropriate approach in terms of addressing the issue around policing cost and investment into the community? I think that it is. But just to say I want a 10% is not simply uh, a, a situation that provides a solution to get to 10%. So uh, I, I take it you probably won't be supporting, um, but are you thinking of a, a, an amendment of some kind or a sort of an alternative motion? I think that there's not. Well, I mean, I think that uh, my position is still the same. I am definitely interested in terms of looking at how we allocate funding for the police and what uh, amounts those should be. And at the same time, those amounts of money that we allocate for policing there are portions of that should be allocated for uh, preventive uh, initiatives that could actually help. Because part of the issue is that we've got to be really mindful of, do we take the necessary precautionary measures to prevent people from interacting or need to interact with policing in the first place? Or do we kind of wait? We don't invest in communities, don't invest in people, and investing in housing, investing in jobs, investing in opportunities investing in health and uh, mental health and so on, do we not invest in those and then simply say, well, we're going to leave it to the police to basically clean up because we have failed to provide enough investment in uh, the preventative aspects and so on. So I think that there's an opportunity for us to address the issue with respect to police budget. I'm not sure that what is being bandied about in the media is the right way to approach it. I think that there's another way, and I've been working on such a way. So to remove it from the kind of procedural lens, in the context of systemic anti-Black racism and people being killed by police, especially people in, in some kind of mental health crisis, yes. in the near future, like what do you hope to see? Does change come with a new chief? Does change come if council can somehow, or the, the police board can somehow reach the police service in the ways that need to change? I mean, you spoke before about the transformational task force and all the goals yes. that were set and they're just not coming yeah. to fruition. So what, what needs to happen in the short term? So I think what needs to happen in the short term is first and foremost, the community as a whole got to speak and uh, be very supportive of the changes, the transformation that are needed and mm -hmm. not to get hoodwinked with respect to another gunshot occurs or another person got killed, so all of a sudden we have to add another 50 police officers or another 100 police officers. I think we have to address the issue around gun violence and other violence in general in society. But I also think that some of the um, things that we have to do in terms of reforms, such as the implementation of Justice Tullock's uh, review and recommendation from his review that was done under the former liberal government, mm -hmm. There are things that police officers got to do. There's things that the boards have to do. There are things that council has to do and so on for both short-term and long-term uh, benefits of um, safe and effective uh, policing, as well as addressing the issues around mental health, the points that you just made and how police react to diverse groups and how they treat them, the use of force. All of these things have got to be addressed as part of a full, uh, wholesome not simply a review, but establishing uh, benchmarks, establishing 
acceptable um, uh, criteria for all of these things and ensuring that they're followed and they're you know monitored and then there's more scrutiny on policing in terms of how they work with people and 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 recognizing that there's an effort to interact with people in a way that is not uh, in keeping with some of the actions that we've seen, whether or not it's Mississauga as just a couple of days ago mm-hmm. and in the United States and in Toronto itself. So there's a lot of work to be done. I believe that that could be done by ways that I think we're looking at addressing coming the 29th and going forward. Okay. Well, Councillor, uh, I want to thank you. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, thanks so much for talking. The motion to defund police by 10% came to Toronto City Council. Deputy Mayor Thompson did not support it. Mayor Tory brought forward his own reform motion, and the majority of councillors voted in lockstep. The defund motion was defeated 8-16. to 16. In fact, Tory's motion, which included requiring all police to wear body cameras at all times, something that has not been demonstrated to curb police violence, is likely to increase the police budget. There were other aspects of Tory's motion, such as asking for a report on implementing a non-police mobile response unit for people experiencing a mental health crisis, and a request to the provincial government to allow the city to demand police budget audits. To help make sense of the outcome of the defund debate at City Hall, I spoke to Nana Yanfo, author and staff lawyer and legal team lead with the Black Legal Action Center. Nana, it's, it's been a big time in the city and all over the world for people to take good, hard looks at policing in their countries and their cities, as well as the systemic racism that permeates basically every level of uh, government, of, of our services. And, you know, I, I know you've been watching it. Uh, what have your takeaways been? Um, yeah, I think that it's been, especially against the back, drop of a global pandemic, I think it's been a really heightened time for folks. And, um, you know, specifically, like, I'm a lawyer at the Black Legal Action Center. And so what we've been seeing in terms of our calls and like the concerns our community is letting us know about, it's, it's policing, but it's also other institutions, other areas that have, you know, such a hold on Black life. And, you know, so it's the education system, it's the um, yes, the police system, but it's also how housing works in, in the city and across the province. And, and so we're just seeing how a lot of these institutions, um, the inequities that used to exist within them are just exacerbated by by COVID and by, and by the pandemic. So, you know, when you zero in on, on policing, this is not a new thing for our community to be frustrated and upset and really looking for radical change when it comes to how policing operates. Um, it's been decades and decades of the same demands and requests in different ways to different kinds of governments, um, to different political leaders. And so I think what we're seeing now is just a rallying, not just of our community, but of, of folks outside of the black community who are coming to terms with the fact that this system doesn't work for anybody. Right. Um, and it especially doesn't work for, for black folks, for indigenous folks, people living with mental illness, um, you know, a variety of people. So. I think this month, the headline news was uh, the, the motion to defund the police um, by about 10%, really just uh, 
maybe more of a symbolic gesture than than what some people were actually calling for. But uh, even that, when, when it met with uh, Toronto City Council, failed to pass and was kind of replaced by a motion by the mayor to implement things like body cameras, uh, which I think studies have been kind of, they, they tend to suggest that they, they don't really solve the problems that politicians sometimes like to say that they do. Were you following the council debate or, or the outcome of that? Yeah, I was following the outcome. I, I didn't get a chance to watch um, the actual proceedings, but uh, you know, obviously at, at the Black Legal Action Center, we were we were really interested in what Toronto would do. Um, at our organization, we serve folks not just in the Toronto area but across the province, and I think there's similar similar kinds of of demands from community and very similar responses from politicians, right? So mm-hmm. it's you know the community demands <laughs> this is what we're, this is what we can live with. And, and the politicians say, no, this is actually what we think is is best for you. Right. So, um, I, I was a little bit surprised, first of all, that the 10% number, I think a lot of folks wondered where that came from. Is it arbitrary? Mm. Was it just symbolic? As you said, um, you know, was it grounded in research? Like we can't remember anyone in the community saying specifically 10%, but you know, that, that even that was rejected. Right. Um, and while they did pass some motions, um, I think you kind of have to look at everything as, you know, a grain of salt. Like it was it's a good step forward, just given how many times over the years people have demanded for for change in policing in the province. So, I mean, the fact that some motions were passed just shows how powerful this time is and how how loud and how strong, you know, the voices of advocates are right now. Mm-hmm. And it's just sad that it, it had to be as a result of black death. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the fear obviously is, okay, a little bit of a step forward, but the fear is like, is it going to just end here? Like, you know, we need to see more drastic change. Like what is it going to take before they really take money away from a system that isn't working away from the police? Right. I think some of the, some of those motions that you're probably referring to is that there was uh, the idea of um, having kind of mobile mental health service providers, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in lieu of sending, you know, armed police officers with guns to theoretically help people in mental health crisis, uh, right. send people that are actually sort of trained to do that. And uh, as mm-hmm. well as uh, asking the province to let the city sort of audit the the way uh, police spend money in the city, because it's, it's kind of uh, under cover of darkness sometimes. Yeah. So like an increase in transparency is never really a problem. I think that should be a given, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, there should be somebody else overseeing a massive, like, you know, over a billion dollar budget. But I think that's the thing. Like a lot of these things are, I think when I was chatting with some folks who aren't as familiar with these issues, they're just like, oh, that doesn't happen already. Like, I think a lot of people were shocked that these motions were so revolutionary. Mm. I think what's happening right now is we're really uncovering how archaic the system is and how like cloud and secrecy it really is. Right. Like even the fact that Toronto police services, but like, what did the, what does the board do? What is their role? What is like, what, where is the accountability? Where does it lie? And so I think what a, a lot of these things have done is said, 
listen, the police aren't doing their job very well. Any other profession where that was the case, they wouldn't continue to get increases. I think what we've been saying and been saying for years is reform isn't enough. Training isn't enough. Like body cameras aren't enough. The research shows that doesn't change behavior, as you mentioned, right? The research is is, is not solid on that, right? Mm-hmm. So why then are we putting more money into things that aren't going to have meaningful change in Black and Indigenous people's lives, right? So I think that's where we start is how how do we make sure that the things that we're asking for and the things that are actually implemented are going to result in meaningful change. And I, I just don't see that here with what, what happened last week with the vote. In, in your legal practice and in, in your work with the Black Legal Action Committee, you must see sort of examples of systemic racism uh, that, that must uh, you know land on your desk fairly frequently. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think what has been really interesting is since we opened at Black, um, it was last year, March, so March of 2019, we thought the majority of our calls would actually be around like police complaints, police brutality. And it's not that they aren't, but actually the majority of our calls are around education and the education system. Mm -hmm. And what we've noticed is, you know, yes, it's about suspensions and expulsions and streaming, but it's also about the school to prison pipeline and how often police are called for things on black students as compared to their, you know, their non-black counterparts. And so I think even outside of the traditional policing, arrest, charge, criminal justice system, we see it manifesting within the education system as well. And so when we're talking about defunding or reducing budgets of police services, we're also saying we have to remove police from a wide variety of of institutions, right? Out of our schools, out of our public transit uh, systems, right? Like it's, it's really is about shifting how we deal with social issues and social problems. So Mm -hmm. um, I think at Blackout, we're really, really starting to see what obviously our community has been saying forever, right? That it's not just the traditional policing, it's really policing of all the systems, right? Right. Black as well uh, released a a long statement uh, addressing anti-Black racism and and policing. Uh, I'm not going to get you to to repeat the the whole statement, but uh, can can you uh, (laughs) let us know uh, what were some of the the important takeaways from that? Yeah, I think what we wanted to do and hope that we achieved through that statement is to remind folks that it didn't just start with, well, in Ontario specifically, it didn't just start with Regis Korkachinsky-Paquette or names like Dondra Campbell a couple months ago, right, in Peel Region. We really wanted to remind folks that um, there have been many, many deaths and serious injuries as a result of um, police involvement. Mm -hmm. And it has stemmed for many, many years in this province. We we tend as as Ontarians and as Canadians to really want to point south of the border to the U.S. and say, you know, it's so bad over there. But I I think it was really important for us. And I'm I'm seeing that a lot from other organizations and and community folks and advocates who are saying, listen, this exists here and we we need to tackle as our own as our own unique thing and part of our history in Canada. So we wanted to highlight that and also tie it to the obligations that all levels of government have, um, specifically the the federal government as well, to international obligations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of these bodies who have come year after year and said, listen, Canada, you need to do better um, on systemic racism and anti-Black racism. We just wanted to tie that in with the moment now um, and, again, remind governments what they need to be doing. So um, in addition to naming those folks who have passed or who were seriously injured, as well as naming kind of the connections between the criminal justice system and the education system and child welfare. We also wanted to make clear demands to the provincial government and to the federal government. So for example, 
the provincial government, you know, we're we're demanding clear and public commitment to zero deaths by police services, an immediate reallocation of resources. As I mentioned before, like removing all police from all institutions, educational institutions across the province. When we talk about transparency and accountability, you know, we want an overall of the police oversight and just looking at how that can be better so there's greater accountability and transparency. So we tried to, in the statement, have, you know, make a lot of connections between the moment now, what's happened in the past, and also where we can move forward. And so to your mind, what happens next or what needs to happen next? I mean, you you mentioned that you you have some fear that this sort of moment will kind of lose steam and people move on to the next thing. And I guess it's up to everyone to make sure that that doesn't happen. But what's that kind of benchmark that you would really like to see in the next kind of weeks? Oh, in the next week? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Or or whatever. You you, you choose the timeline. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm hopeful. It would be great if, you know, like the police services board could step up. I know they have a meeting. I think it's this week or next week. Um, It'd be great if they could, you know, really take a hold and start, you know, holding the police service accountable specifically in Toronto, right? And if there are limitations to the board, I've seen calls, uh, people playing, placing calls out for like a different kind of oversight body for the Toronto Police Services, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe if the board is not able to kind of rein them in and have really any teeth, maybe there needs to be another system of accountability that has community folks and and more voices on there. I think that's, that's one thing. Um, I think also we need to remember how we got here and what happened, you know, just a little over a year ago when Doug Ford <laughs> came into power and slashed everything and also the number of councillor numbers. Like, I'm just seeing everything kind of exacerbate, be exacerbated by this time, right? And mm-hmm. so um, I think we can't forget that this has to be long-term. It has to impact the way we vote and um you know how how we're we're showing up to to all forms of elections um really demanding from our councillors from our from our mayor from all of our elected officials like continually putting these demands on the table um so i know at black that's that's also really important that these demands are not going to just be in a one-time statement like we want to make sure that we're consistently asking for for these things and reminding governments of their obligations. So yeah, I think moving forward, what's key is that this momentum stays on, that it's not just black indigenous folks who are, you know, fighting in the streets, but it's all of our job to really work at unraveling systemic anti-black racism and white supremacy. And I don't I, I don't think it's gonna happen in three weeks or a few weeks, but right. um I think we're we're on we're on a good trajectory and it just needs to continue that you know, we continue fighting together and that we see it as all of our responsibility and start to really shift away from dehumanizing those most vulnerable, right? Like really starting to shift our thinking and working together to to achieve that. So I, I'm hopeful of of where we can go with this. And so if people want to look into Black and, and the work that you do, uh, where can they find that? You can find us on our website. It's www.blacklegalactioncenter.ca and it's center, C-E-N-T-R-E. Mm-hmm. And also we're all on social media as well. Um, so you can find us on Twitter at black underscore Ontario. And um, on Instagram, we're at Black Legal Action Center. So yeah, feel free to reach out and uh, we look forward to connecting. All right. Well, uh, Nana, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Last episode, I encouraged everyone to keep the pressure on their elected representatives throughout the COVID pandemic. 
that this seemed to be a moment when politicians were more receptive than ever to deficiencies in our built environment, with the need for safe active transportation and the housing crisis. That pressure is even more important when it comes to dismantling the racial violence at the bedrock of institutions like police services in this country. There's been a massive movement all over North America calling for the defunding of police services. In Toronto, the police budget is the single biggest annual expense. That's common in cities. And there's plenty of evidence that communities would be better served if the money was spent, instead, on community supports like housing and mental health services. It often feels like there's no accountability when it comes to police. Politicians admit feeling like their hands are tied, and some have even suggested police have ways of acting out retribution on those who suggest it's time for a change. And the multi-jurisdictional red tape is a house of mirrors, everyone pointing fingers at their own reflection. But activist pressure can work. The people and organizations pushing for change are smart, fearless, and effective. Seek out those movements, support them, donate them if you've got the bread, and help spread their message. I've watched my fair share of government meetings, and the pace of progress is howlingly slow. But don't let up. Don't let them change the channel. And that's the show. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at track 82. That's all spelled out. If there's anything you'd like to hear, anything you'd appreciate us digging into, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca. There'll be new content on there to help keep you informed. And our store at 401 Richmond Street West is now open for curbside pickup and window shopping. Check spacingstore.ca for business hours or mail. In the meantime, Black Lives Matter here.